Well, it's great to see you this morning, and it's great to have those online on television as well. And we welcome you all. Let me just say that before I get into the message this morning, uh, by the way, that was a great music set, wasn't it? I mean, how do you follow that? I almost feel like I, gotta, I need to sing a couple of songs to really gross you out to make the sermon just sound a lot better. But man, that was really good. And I just uh, felt really in the Lord this morning in both of our services, actually. And so let me, let me share with you that. Normally, we have a big mission emphasis every year. We call it our Global Impact Conference. We bring missionaries from all over the world, let you meet them, and then we ask you to make a financial pledge in order to uh, help them. And we, uh, we made some commitments even last year during our, our time together. And uh, one of them was to support a church in Los Angeles as a church plant, just getting started. And then also one in New York City. A year before that, we started a church in Haiti, if you remember that. This year, we did not have that kind of emphasis. Therefore, we didn't have that kind of pledging either. But what we want to do this year is simply just have a little bit of emphasis each week between now and Christmas uh, about missions. And, uh, and then we're going to ask you, whatever you were doing in missions before your commitment, we're going to ask you to do that again. Just keep going with it until August and that's when we plan our next Global Impact Conference. Now, next week, we're going to start celebrating. And uh, we're going to have one of our mission pastors, Jason Polk, to come in from Echo Church out in Los Angeles. He's going to be telling us what's going, to go, what's going on there. And then the next week, Patrick Thompson from New York City started a church in Manhattan. And a lot of things have been going on there as well. And so we look forward uh, to them here in the next couple of weeks. Now, as we're looking at our series of messages on uh, seven questions for overcoming 2020. One of the things that I've noticed here in the last five, 10 years, probably just five years, is really an obsession with zombies. Have you noticed that? How many of you ever seen the TV show, The Walking Dead? I wouldn't admit to that, but no, I mean, you've seen it. World War Z, that Brad Pitt movie, I, I saw that, didn't know what it was about, but until I got there, and then I Am Legend, and who can forget the classic movie, The Night of the Living Dead. And so you're wondering, what in the world is a zombie? I'm glad you asked that. A zombie, by definition, is a fictitious creature or monster that started out human who sort of died, but somehow is not dead and has become the living dead or the walking dead. Its sole purpose is to seek out the living and kill them or make them into other zombies depending on the movie that you're watching. And so that is what a zombie is all about. Now, the reason I bring this out is because that's what Jesus seems to be describing the church we're about to look at, the church at Sardis. It looks like that's what he's accusing them of being. In fact, let's just read the first verse in chapter three, verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has been seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. You are dead. And so he's accusing them to be the living dead. They think they're alive, but they are dead. Now, we've been looking at these seven letters to seven churches, believing that the seven questions that we ask in these seven churches are going to help us to get through 2020 and into 2021. And the question here is, where is the life? Where, where is your life? Not where is your life now, but do you have the life? And if so, how, what are you doing with it? And so we notice that God 
is calling this church dead. Now, it's one thing for me to call a church dead. It's one thing for us to say, oh, you know, I've been in that church, man, you could walk in. What an atmosphere, just death. It felt like I was going to a funeral. But it's one thing for you and I to call the church dead. It's quite another thing for Jesus to call that church dead. Suddenly, it gets their attention. So we're going to be looking at three things this morning to answer this question. One, the problem, then prescription. Finally, the promise in verses four through six. First of all, verse one, the problem. We want to look at this verse again, the angel of the church. Now, he keeps writing the messenger. And in every one of these passages, every one of these seven churches there in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, we find that he keeps writing to the pastor. And the pastor is supposed to pass the letter along. I've heard it said, hey, if you want to know the temperature of your church, the pastor needs to stick the thermometer in his own mouth. And so I believe that he was looking at this pastor first and saying, look, you are responsible for this church, and now you have to share with the church what you are sort of, at least in leadership-wise, responsible for. He says to the angel, the pastor, he says, I write in Sardis. Now, Sardis was a town, a city that used to be very important. It was located 30 miles northeast of Thyatira, which we recently preached on, 1,500 feet above the valley that it was a part of. And reality, they did not feel like they were dead on the inside, but they were. Now, this town used to be, like I said, important. Five trading routes leading right through the city. It had gold mining near it at one time. And so this was the first place ever to mint gold into coins. Very important. The problem is they were living in the past. They were a broken down city. And they were always just remembering the past. In AD 17, we find that the city was destroyed by an earthquake. And Rome came in. It was under Roman, it was Roman province, Roman city. And so Rome came in and rebuilt the city. And from then on, it was not the same anymore. It was always, boy, this is what we used to do. This is what we used to be about. And that kind of attitude had leaked over and bled over into the church. Here's what it says. Sardis. Write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. We look at that and say, wow, what's it talking about? The Holy Spirit? How can the Holy be seven Holy Spirits? Remember, the book of Revelation is written in such a way that has a lot of symbolism in it. The word seven or the number seven is a symbol for perfection. There's numerology in the Bible. The number three is the number for God. The number six is the number for man. That's why you have 666, the the, the premier man, the Antichrist in the end times here in the book of Revelation. The number seven is the perfect number. The number 10 is the number of completion. And so when he says the, perfect, the, the seven Holy Spirits or seven spirits, he's saying the perfect spirit of God. Now, why does he bring this out? Remember in every single one of these letters how he describes himself based upon chapter one when John saw the vision of Christ. We went over this whole passage last week. We reviewed it very quickly and how Jesus is described. Then he comes back and he describes himself to each one of these churches and he's describing himself. It has something to do with their problem and the solution. And he says right up front, before I even tell you the problem, I'm going to tell you the solution. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to come inside your church. He is the source of life. He is the source of power. Here's what John 6 says. Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. 
Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The power to live, the power to not be dead. The Bible says, salvation-wise, we are dead spiritually, Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead on the inside. There, there is nothing there. We're separated. That word death in this sense means a separation of something. There's a separation between us and God. When we receive Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God comes into us and ignites our old dead spirit and brings us to life. And he's reminding them, if you want to rise from the dead, the Holy Spirit is always going to be the key to do that. And he says to you, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The reputation. You know, and other, um, all, the, all the first, what, four uh, churches, at least the three I've preached on, have said, look, you've got a problem in this church. It's false doctrine, idolatry, or immorality. No problem like that here. There's no false doctrine here that we can trace. Jesus never says you have false doctrine. Jesus never says there's immorality in the church. The, the, the spirit of Jezebel is in the church. The Nicolaitans are in the church. Or they're, they're in the church and you're allowing it to be in the church, even though you don't believe it yourself. We've seen this. We've run the gamut with all this in the first four churches. Nothing here. And they believed that they were just fine. There's no real compromise, but the reality is they were dead on the inside. Now, we ask ourselves a question, and it's an important one. Is he talking about the church as a whole? Is he talking about the people in the church? Well, both and and no, and yes. You see, a church cannot be born again. That, that is the institution of it. And he's addressing, first and foremost, the institution. So there's a deadness. There's, and this word here means lifeless. It means useless. It means of no effect whatsoever. No impact it's useless, it's lifeless, it's empty, worthless. It reminds us of the song we just sang just a few moments ago out of Ezekiel 37. Those dry bones live. And we see the valley of dry bones and the prophet Ezekiel sees all that, but he also sees these bones disconnected. He knew there was a reason that that was all taking place and he knew the solution was a great revival with the power of the Holy Spirit. The difference is in this church, they just, they didn't know it. They were disillusioned by it all. And I want you to notice the next two words in chapter two or verse two. Wake up. How can you wake up the dead? Here's the situation. The institution as a whole, the church was dead, but it had life in it because it had people in it that were alive. They had people in it that were lost. They didn't know Christ. They had people in it that, was, that were saved, that were born again. But looking at the institution, he says, you're useless, you're worthless. You're there in the city, you've allowed the culture to influence you. You've become part of the city, you have not influenced the city. You've not led them to Christ. And your, not your culture has not rubbed off on them, their culture has rubbed off on you, and so you don't, you don't really care that much anymore. You're not, you don't have life about you, you don't have an evangelistic fervor about you. You're, you're not really preaching the word of God with power anymore. But he says, wake up. Why would he say this? Because there was a chance for that church to be revived. Not only that, but there was a chance for those people in the church that were lost to be saved. And there were, as we'll find out in just a few moments, there were some in that church that were saved, that needed to get out of that kind of culture and come back and wake up. Now, it's, 
it's really amazing that he would use the word wake up because what he's describing here is really kind of a, a spiritual sleep. It's a time when you're asleep in your dream, you're in disillusionment, right? You, you don't know whether up and down, is, you, you don't know. You don't know. You wake up in the middle of the night and you think to yourself, man, did I just hear something? Man, I think I just got shot. No, you were dreaming that. I remember, in fact, I told the story in my book about, and you know the story about the spiritual vertigo, and one of my sons and I were, were back in the summer, and one summer, and um, the rest of the family was gone for vacation. I had to stay there with him because he was playing uh, basketball year-round, or one of the sports years year-round. And so uh, we were there, we decided to play golf that day out in the heat of July. I came back, I was very dehydrated, woke up in the middle of the night, had to call the ambulance to come and get me. And so the paramedics were knocking at the windows and knocking at the doors, and I finally got it out of my mouth without really passing out that my son was on the other side of the house. And so they go, they knock on his window, they get him up, he opens up the door, they've got me out on a stretcher, they're rolling me out, and I see him, his eyes were this big. And I said, hey, son, it'll be all right. They're just gonna take me to the hospital, it'll be okay, I'll be okay, just make sure the doors are locked. All night long, I was concerned about him. He's there by himself, 15 years old, by himself, not knowing whether his dad was going to be alive or dead. I mean, he didn't know. The next morning, he wakes up, calls his mother, and he says, Mom, I think they took Dad to the hospital last night. <laughs> Every time I tell that story, he gets, he gets a little upset about it. But he was, what happened? What happened? He was in a dream. He woke up but didn't wake up. Yesterday, when my wife and I were sitting on the couch, she was talking to me about something, and I, I was, we were watching TV, and I just dozed off. And she asked me a question. And I, I looked at her and I said, I cannot answer that question. I have no idea what you just said because I was asleep. And if I were to ask, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, somebody look, look at you and say, wow, you know, uh, what, what's your favorite uh, sport? Or what's your fa who'd you vote for? And you say, Bugs Bunny. You know, you just don't know. You're out, you're out of your mind, so to speak. And you're, you're there and you're disillusioned and these people were asleep and they could not tell reality from the dream, from the nightmare. We look at this as like Judges when, when Samson was going to be attacked and he says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. This church didn't know that the Lord had left them like the dry bones in Ezekiel. And so... How in the world does something like this happen? Well, they allowed the culture to affect the church. That's one way. Uh, they, they looked at things like uh, money or uh, uh, fears that they have being more important than what was going on in the church. They lost their evangelistic fervor, and they began to worship the past. We know that about this church. But there are other things as well that causes us to lose the fire and the life within a church. And one of the things is simply a, a lack of involvement. I've known people before. In fact, let me, let me share this story. When I was back out in, in seminary out in Texas, I, I had the privilege of leading. I didn't teach it. I, I ran the, the program behind the scenes. The largest Bible conference in the state of Texas that year. It was a, I was underqualified by a long shot, and they gave me the project, and uh, they were, were in that big city. And during this time, the pastor of the church that we wanted to do this conference in, he says, I'm not sure if I want you to do this because I've told the church we're putting everything on hold this year. And we've done new things every year for the last 20 years and, 
and, and we just, or 15, 20 years, and we just want to just improve what we have. So we're putting everything on hold, but he finally relented and allowed us to do it. He put that church on hold, not for one year, but for 15 years. The church is just on hold. He didn't mean to do it, but once he put it on hold, he, he couldn't get it started back up again with the fervor that it, they had before. You and I, when we come to a point of no longer being engaged, we fall asleep. There's some people that are saying, hey, you know, I, I've been teaching youth, for example, for the last, uh, I don't know, six, seven years, and I think I'm going to take a break. I've seen it happen in this church. I've seen it happen in other churches. I'm, I'm just going to take a break. So the break comes, and they try to find a small group. Maybe they can, maybe they can't, but they begin to lose interest. They begin to travel a lot more. After all, they couldn't travel as much when they were teaching a youth class, and they begin further and further and further away, and pretty soon you don't see them anymore. It's not that they've gone to another church. They don't go anywhere at all. They become disengaged because of a lack of investment. They lose the vision. We're going to see in, in just a few, a few moments that they need to catch the vision again, but they lost the vision. Our vision here at our church, building lives that matter by teaching people to love, know, trust, and follow Jesus, to share the gospel. In order, the vision is to share the gospel of Jesus wherever we live, work, and play, and go so the sun will not set on the ministry of Cross Life Church. Look, this thing happens. I can imagine the church at Sardis. It was like a, like, like a lot of new churches here that we have in the 21st century. You get a group of people together. They're all excited about it. And then pretty soon it becomes institutionalized. And then it begins to die. Vance Havner, a former evangelist, put it this way, a late evangelist. He says, every church starts off with a movement, then moves to a machine, and then finally a monument. But this not only applies to a church as a whole, but individuals as well. As well. And so, how would God describe you in all this today? And what is the prescription for it? We can see a couple of things. First of all, it says in verse 2, wake up. Wake up. Begin to get out of the dream state. Come out of the nightmarish state. See things for what they are and not for what you've dreamed them up. To be, he says, to wake up and to watch. This literally means, in, a, in the Greek, to wake up in a sense that you are alert, that you're watching. The city of Sardis was actually captured two different times. One time in 549 BC and the other time in 195 BC, and it was done the same way. The city of Sardis was way up on a hill, and on three sides of the hill, you could not scale it. You had to, you had to actually climb one at a time up the mountain. The other side was very vulnerable as people could just come right up. And so they would guard the, the vulnerable side of the mountain and disregard the backside of the mountain. And on two separate occasions, armies scaled those rocks, got up into the city of Sardis and captured that city because they were not alert. They were not watching. So he says, wake up. Then he says, strengthen yourselves. What remains and is about to die? There's something here of life within the church. And we'll find out that that is a remnant that's remained in the church. He says, to strengthen yourself. How do you do that? You turn things over to, the, to God so the Holy Spirit of God can give you life, can give you power. So that, Christ says, may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
and that being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend what are the saints, what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you, you may be filled with the fullness of God, Holy Spirit, working in your life in a great way. He says, keep it. Verse three. He says, remember then what you have received. Don't remember what, how, how things used to be. You say, well, what about, what about Cross Life Church? Are you living in the past? Because we've had a great ministry in the past, I believe. But I found out this week, and this is something really good to know. We just praise God for it. I know that um, you know, all of our churches across America are sporadic and physical attendance. But we have discovered this week that 17,000 people per week watch us. More than any other time in our history. 13,000 of that comes through TV 45. And this is on right now. And we would love anybody watching by TV to, to engage with us and go online with us and uh, fill out the, the welcome card and become part of us in, that, in any way you can. But 13,000 of it, and, and our, our viewership has gone up 20% during the pandemic. And then also, our viewership online has gone up 600% in the last six months. So God is working now, and we've got to find out new ways to do the same thing we've been doing before, and that is reaching people for Jesus Christ. And he says this. He says, keep it and repent. He says in every single one of these things, he's, he keeps telling us, repent, repent, repent. He says, I want you to remember. Remember not what you've been before, but remember Jesus dying on the cross for you. Remember and ask yourself the question, is this what Jesus had in mind? Is this what he had in mind where we're just merely kind of going to church or watching church or whatever we're doing once a week and it not having anything to do with our life? George Barnes said as he studied Christians across America and he studied non-Christians as well, there seems to be very little difference between our lives. People look at us and say, why should I? I'm going through all kinds of problems. I'm dying on the inside. But why should I come to you for the answers when you seem to be doing the same things that I'm doing? I'm dying. You're dying on the inside as well. And so we look at this. He says, remember, remember, is this what Jesus had in mind? Is what you are living for worth Jesus dying for? He says, I want you to remember the cross and I want you to repent. Turn away from those wicked ways. And if not, he says this, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Did you know, again, there are 4,000 to 8,000 churches that close their doors every year in America. It's estimated more than that this year because of COVID. Closing their doors you walk into churches and you see a sporadic group of people and you see them just going through the motions. I've been in churches before and preached in churches where the front door is not even open. They just come in the side because that's where they come in for small groups. I've been in a church, I preached in a church uh, once. I walk in, it's, you know, you've seen it, one middle aisle and they're uh, pews on both sides. This set of pews had nothing but boards on it. Those tongue and groove boards, uh, one, one by fours, all the way down here because they were going to do some construction. I looked at those boards 
And they must have been sitting there for 10 years. They were discolored. And I went to the front and he says, well, uh, we're just going to use this little music stand because we have a wasp nest in the pulpit. Wow, how long has it been there? Well, we don't know. It's been a long time. Kind of growing. We've got to do something about that. Now, that's extreme. But how many churches have you been in and you've left the church and you felt nothing? You, you were no different from when you walked out than when you came in. There was no challenge. There was no gospel. There was no, the Bible was not preached. And he says to us, repent and return or I will come to you and I'm gonna close those doors because what you are doing inside that church is not what, we're, what I was worth dying for. So he says, you need to repent. What's the promise here? Look in verse four as I close out. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not spoiled their garments. These are the, these are the ones that are still saved in the church. Or they are saved in the church. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They've been, why are they in white? They've been cleansed from their sin. White is the symbol of cleansing of sin. And he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. He says, I'm going to make what you know positionally, that is, you've been forgiven of all your sins. I'm going to make it real in your life as you're going to conquer those sins. Not only save from the penalty of sin, but I want to save you from the power of sin. Actually wearing the white garments. Then he says in the, in the next promise, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Man, this sounds like that you can lose your salvation. And yet Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. All along in the Bible, it tells us, it says that you inherit eternal life. The Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside your heart and eternal life begins right then. So how in the world can you take away something that's eternal? It's been said that Baptists believed and once saved, always saved. I, I really don't like to put it that way. So it reminds me of the story of the guy that goes to the barber on his 50th birthday, goes to his barber, and he says, I've never had a shave in a barber shop, ever. And I just want to know what that feels like. I'm 50 years old, celebrating my 50th birthday. I'd like to have a shave. And he says, well, I can't get to you right now. But my daughter, uh, Grace, uh, she can do it. She does a really, she shaves me. She does a great job. He says, great. And so he gets in the chair, chair gets a shave. His, his skin is like that of a baby. He couldn't believe it. He goes home next day, wakes up. He still doesn't need a shave. So close. But by the third or fourth day, he, he still doesn't need a shave. Finally, on the fifth day, he goes back to the barber and he says, uh, Harry, I don't understand it. I, I came here and got a shave five days ago and I still don't need a shave. And Harry says, oh, you don't understand. You see, you were shaved by grace. <laughs> and once shaved, always shaved, right? <laughs> All right. I don't know which is worse. The joke itself or you clapping for it. But anyway. <laughs> no, I <clears throat> couldn't resist. And what about this? You see, the whole thing to it is this. You've got to be saved. He says, look, some of you in the church that are going to this dead church, you're dead and you think you're alive. But there's some of you who are alive. We oftentimes, we, we think to ourselves, 
oh, uh, if I just pray this prayer, you know, we teach it maybe to our children and just pray the sinner's prayer and you'll be saved. But, and I, I do that, and yet at the same time, please understand, I try to explain it to you every week. That it's not just merely you're asking God to forgive your sins and then just go on and live any way you want to live. Rather, you're giving your heart to Christ. You're giving your, your life to Christ. You're not only taking him as Savior, but the God of your life. How can you think that the Holy Spirit of God can come and live inside of our heart and our life not be changed? It's not a reformation, dear friends. It's a transformation. One of the great illustrations of this is the idea of Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was a gangster back in the 1940s in Los Angeles. And the story goes, true story, he made a profession of faith in Christ. I think he did it at Billy Graham Crusade, but I, I can't document that. But people came to him and said, you know, Mickey, you, you, you say you're saved, but you didn't get, you're still a gangster. And he said, you know, that's not fair. They're Christian entertainers. They're Christian ball players. They, they get saved and they keep, try, they, keep, they keep doing their profession. You didn't tell me I had to stop being a gangster. I believe I can be a Christian gangster. Chuck Colson, late Chuck Colson, comments on the story in this way. Cohen was echoing the millions of professing Christians who, though unwilling to admit it, through their very lives posed the question, not about being a Christian gangster, but about being Christianized versions of whatever they already are and are determined to remain that way. Hey, look, this is what I do and this is how I live and uh, this is what I have to do to make a living and this is the actions I have to go through. So I run my own life, I do my own thing, but it's Christianized. You know, I go to church, I, I give money, I, I give to the poor. I Christianize, I baptize the life that I always, always have. What does this verse mean? In, the, in these days, and it's important for us to understand the background here because it's a very difficult passage. In these days, in the Old Testament, Psalm 69, I believe it is, they talk about a registry. They also do it back early in the Old Testament as well, that every Israel citizen, is, citizen of Israel, his name's written down in a book of life, so to speak. And in the Greek culture, they, what they started doing, they started doing the same registry. But if you did a crime, a crime that was punishable by death, they would actually take you off the register as though you never were alive. And Jesus now refers back to that. He says, as the lost world will, will blot your name out. He says, know this, if you are truly saved, those few names in Sardis of people who have not soiled their garments, if you are truly a born again believer, he says, I'm not, I'm not gonna blot your name. No one will ever blot your name out of the book of life. This is not a threat, dear friends. It's a promise from God. He says, if you have really been saved, Eternal life for you began the very moment that you received Christ into your life. And eternal life never ends for you. But the question remains, have you tried to Christianize your life or have you turned your life over to God as the Holy Spirit has come into your life, ignited your old dead spirit and made you a new person? Not reformed, but transformed. Well, we find this avenue is the Holy Spirit. He says to us, I will confess your name before my Father who is in, in angels. 
who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The Spirit, verse one, the seven spirits of God. The key to all this, dear friends, is the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. I know I've mentioned a lot of uh, horror stuff, horror movies, I guess, and TV shows uh, today. But let me give you one more. And Halloween's even over. But let me give you one more. I was flipping through the channels years ago, and I found a, a television show that I'd never watched before called Tales of the Dark Side. I don't know if you ever heard of that or not. It's the only time I've ever seen it. And um, I, now was, I was a fan of Twilight Zone when I was younger, but not this one. And so I turned it on, and it intrigued me because they were sitting around, as it were, a family dinner, much like you'd find on Blue Bloods or the show Blue Bloods or maybe even a Thanksgiving dinner. And, and it looks like a man was sitting at the head of the table that was rotting away. And he was. And... Here was a man that was dead, but he didn't know it, didn't realize it. Again, it's a weird show, weird. And so he's eating, and his, you can see his skin just, it's rotted away, and he's trying to eat, and things are going right through him. The rest of the family is looking at this and saying, oh, how, how gross is this? And at one, one point, okay, this is going to gross you out, but his nose falls off into his soup. I know the middle schoolers love this story, but, um, and he grumbles, mad. He gets up out of his seat, begins to walk upstairs. And the little boy looks at his dad, his dad and says, where's grandpa going? He said, son, he just realized that he's dead and he's going to go up and lay down and accept Death. I say to you today, don't accept death. Don't accept it. Things are rotting away at your very soul, but those dry bones can live again. The Spirit of God, the seven spirits, this perfect Holy Spirit can come into your heart, ignite that old dead spirit within you and make your life whole, Make your life worth living and save you forever for heaven. Wouldn't you like to make that decision today? With heads bowed and eyes closed, you can make that decision. And again, it's not just praying a simple prayer. It's praying that God would do such a work in your life that he would save you, come into your life and save you. Not only your soul, not just Christianize you, who you are, but transform who you are. As you change who you worship from whatever's on the throne of your life now to God himself. Let's pray together. You're on television and also the internet. I would invite you to pray with us as part of our church family. And as you pray, first of all, you're a Christian today and you know that there's something in your life you need to deal with. There's a deadness in your life. You know that you're a Christian but you're not, and on the outside maybe even, it looks like you're living it, but there's things on the inside you know that are dead and they're working at your very soul to destroy your life. Is what you're living for really worth Jesus dying for? Is this what he had in mind? 
Would you make things right with the Lord right now? And then those who have never received Christ, or if you're not sure, ask yourself this question. If I were to die today, right now, do I know that I'd go to heaven? If not, then pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm dead on the inside. But I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. And I ask you to come into my life. I take you, Lord, as the Savior of my soul and the Lord and God of my life. Help me to live a life that really, truly makes a difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.